Hi everyone. So what you're about to hear are two clarifying questions that we asked Ajima at the end of the episode, but we felt that they'd be of more use moving them to the front of the episode, to the beginning of the episode. Uh, and once you're through with those, then we'll get into the full episode. Enjoy. We have two quick questions for you that we had wanted to ask earlier, but then kind of got like slipped slip through the cracks. And so we want to ask them now and then just sort of magically put them at the beginning of this. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, and so the first one was, and so, and I, I think because most people, at least for me, so when I was an undergrad, like I would sort of look at my financial aid and it's like Pell Grant and like, like all that really meant to me was, okay, I'm getting money. Mm -hmm. but what exactly is a Pell Grant? A Pell, it's, it's a grant. It literally is. So it's, it's free money, unlike student loans, where there's an interest rate attached to it and you got to pay it back. And um, a, I haven't received a Pell Grant in years. I think I received it once. Like, oh, great. And it never happened again. Um, but the Pell Grant is, I think it's, it's calculated based on your taxes or your family's household taxes. Um, and I forget if there's a cap or how much you can receive but I, I assume it's, it's sufficient enough to pay for um, tuition, um, at least to make a, a good dent in it, but then again, the cost of tuition these days, but hopefully it's adjusted for that. But it's, it's, it's free money from the federal government, essentially, um, to, to pay for, to, to enroll in college, to pay for tuition. Or, yeah, I think, I, I don't know if it's locked to tuition, or if it's just, or just, if you're enrolled, here's money to pursue your education. And what was our other question, Jen? Oh. Um, so you mentioned that uh, the First Step Act. Can you just describe quickly what the First Step Act is? So the First Step Act, um, and forgive me, I'm, I'm recalling, it was, um, it's, so it, it was sort of a reform bill that did, undid a lot of things. Like, um, it's kind of, think of just sort of a, a reentry bill. Um, the first sort of re, uh, reentry bill we had since, I think, um, George Bush, uh, the, 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 the second, the, the, the junior. And so what it did was um, remove things like, for example, women who are pregnant and shackled. That's no longer a thing, right? Um, the First Step Act actually also, um, I'm trying to think, it uh, did things like um, improve conditions of confinement, so like de-escalation training, um, actually takes into account the different ways in which women experience incarceration. I mentioned like so the not being shackled, um, the feminine hygiene projects, things like that. And I'm thinking it, there's more something else significant around sentencing that I'm trying to recall. Um, but uh, it also released a lot of people who had racked up good time credits and I think were um, low level or nonviolent um, um, sentences. And uh, so it enabled a lot of people to um, be released. And I think it also, what, I'm forgetting some major sentencing aspect of it. I really am. Um, and I'm trying to remember what was a huge piece of this? Um, one second. I'm so glad you can edit this out. <laughs> um, and this is where it's just helpful to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find um, the actual legislation. 
Um, but it was, it was pretty significant um, in terms of, um, oh, okay. Um, ah, okay. So one huge thing in terms of um, sentencing, um, there's this thing called the safety valve, particularly at the federal level. So for federal, uh, people who receive federal sentences, um, typically the safety valve is sort of like um, uh, a mitigating factor you could apply to a sentence. So what it did is it expanded like, basically eligibility for this safety valve. So what our judge can impose a lower sentence despite being subject to imposing a mandatory minimum. Uh, so the safety valve is just sort of meant to sort of like, um, it's kind of, <laughs> It's kind of like uh, a, um, I'm supposed to impose this mandatory minimum, but you meet these other criteria that allows me to um, go around that. Um, so prison conditions was another thing. Um, let's see, oh, did it actually, that was the other huge thing. So if you recall the sentencing disparity between um, powder and crack cocaine, cocaine, so originally it was 101, we yeah. reduced it. So that reduction, uh, I forget what it is now. I think it's 18 to 1. Yeah, so that reduction, when, um, when that was passed, it wasn't retroactive. So you had a lot of people that are incarcerated on the original disparity. The First Step Act made that retroactive. Okay. So, yeah, and so yeah, that- that would be a big deal. Yes, <laughs> and I was just like, I know I'm missing something. This is huge. And so that was like, I, um, and the other things are related to like, so fixing good time, the conditions of confinement for women, um, in terms of access to feminine hygiene products and pregnant women who are detained not being um, handcuffed okay. um, in, in the process of like labor. Um, yes, that's so thing. Yeah, so those are the major sort of things that it, it, it did and that was um, instrumental. Um, you saw a lot of people get released based on that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was like thinking after when we were going on to new topics, I was like, we need to go back and ask this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you did because it's kind of so easy to forget. But like, like I said, that's probably the I think the most meaningful legislation that has passed since in terms of reentry since um, the Second Chance Act. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that because because be between George Bush's presidency, so during the Obama years. There was a lot of bipartisan support and still is for criminal justice reform, criminal justice reform, but we didn't see any law come out. Um, so um, that was sort of like a nice, oh, finally something. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hi everyone, welcome back. My name is Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Tosleib. And we are the co-hosts of the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. In this episode, we will be speaking with Professor Ajima Olagari about incarcerated populations and correctional education. Ajima Olagari is an assistant professor at Temple University's Department of Criminal Justice, where her research advances our understanding of the interrelated nature of communities, place, Policing and Reentry. Dr. Olagare approaches criminology with a strong belief that the act of research, that is, the way that researchers conduct themselves and their studies, is critical to producing meaningful impact on policies, practices, and affected communities. This belief has driven her to publish quantitative studies on juvenile drug treatment and youth diversion, 
alongside qualitative and mixed method studies on street-level drug transactions. Recently, she has been laser-focused on a persistent gap in her field of criminology, a lack of intentional, meaningful, and upfront community engagement in research. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ajima. Well, thank you for having me and for that introduction. That's a great reading of my bio. <laughs> oh, so kind of a brief overview of where we're going with this episode is first, we're going to start with some broad questions per usual, kind of surrounding the areas of incarcerated populations and educational experiences and opportunities within correctional facilities. And then we'll move into a paper authored by Ajima, as well as some of her co-authors on learning opportunities while incarcerated. And then last but not least, we'll move into another project that Ajima is working on, on legitimacy within corrections. So Jose, why don't you get us started? Sure thing. So the first thing that we want to talk to you about is like these, these broad questions about education with incarcerated populations and sort of like the opportunities that they might have or the lack of, right? And so our first question for you is, so what is sort of like the prevalence of high school diplomas or GEDs among incarcerated populations? So yeah, great question when you, when you think about the context of what we're going to be discussing. The data I'm going to cite is pretty old, it's from 2013, it comes from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, so we need another sort of iteration of this. I and mean, I think the First Step Act might be the start of that. I think there's a mandate to collect some statistics about correctional populations, or at least I saw that. But it's just under 30% when you think about the federal level, the state level. And there, of course, that's going to vary between the federal level and the state level. But in terms of like the high school diploma, which is treated separately, separately from the GED, it's just about 27%, right? At the state level, I think you see more GEDs that are closer to 20 to 30%, around 28% versus high school diploma that's more around like close to a fifth, so 22%. So there is a very sort of small, small, small proportion of people who are currently incarcerated that have completed formal education, right? Or it's secondary education. And along sort of similar lines, so I'd imagine since since it doesn't seem very prevalent for them to have high school diplomas or, or GEDs, mm-hmm. I'm going to take a shot in the dark and say that post-secondary education isn't very prevalent with them either. Yep, and you hit the mark despite taking that shot in the dark. Yeah, exactly, because we know prerequisite for post-secondary ed- education programs is having a GED or high school diploma. And so... It's actually much lower than 30%. I think at the federal level, it's probably hovering you know, around 23. At the state, you're looking at much less than 20%. And we saw, particularly at 2013, when these metrics were produced, this drastic decrease in obtaining or being enrolled is a direct result of the 1994 crime bill, which banned incarcerated individuals from receiving Pell Grants to pursue their college education uh, while incarcerated. So that you can imagine, or we can hypothesize that probably had an effect on people's motivation or incentive to complete their GED if they hadn't had a high school diploma while they're incarcerated. Do you know off the top of your head, like what the average level, uh, highest level of education is? I know in one of the studies that I work on the data Mm -hmm. a lot, it's like 10th, 11th grade is like the mean within the sample. Is that and that's just within Texas. Is that kind of mm. representative of the national statistics? 
Unfortunately, so we looked at so the data that we used did not, did I think it did? It sounds consistent. I'm not sure, but in terms of average, yeah, I'd be surprised if just given the prevalence, if it was anything higher than that. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. We're sad too. And there's, there's a lot of opportunity there, which kind of goes into sort of the impetus for the article that we wrote. Yeah. So our next question is kind of more on disparities. So we know mm-hmm. that there are disparities in education within the community at large, especially for communities that tend to be more disadvantaged or from oppressed communities. Do we see these same disparities in education for those who are incarcerated or is there this equity, this equality in education within corrections? It's exactly as you said, there is a disparity. And I think that's one of sort of the interesting things that we found in one of the models that we ran in terms of the way, the very imperfect way in which we were actually trying to capture structural disadvantage in terms of language and race and ethnicity, which I do not advocate, but the limitation of the data itself. We saw that that tended to be associated with a decrease in literacy and, and numeracy scores. And we said that we sort of hypothesized that's a direct result of people who are being incarcerated are coming from communities and contexts where in terms of education, in terms of resources, right, there are a greater disadvantage. So that's, that's directly translated into a facility, which goes into, we have an equity issue where if there are educational programs being provided institutions that are meant to prepare people to re- rehabilitate or provide them, what we say is a, a competitive chance upon release, there's a whole sort of segment of people that are not even able to even begin to that process because they're coming in from sort of a, a different place. And so it, it requires a conversation about equity. What do we need to do to get people to that same level in order to be able to take advantage of some of these post-secondary and more formal programs that do have eligibility or criteria attached to them? And within the correctional institutions talking about, you know, sort of th- these programs, what types of formal educational programs are offered in correctional institutions? Yeah, so you have your, your basic, you know, required ones. So obviously the GED program, right? And then there's adult basic education, there's vocational programs, there's programs that are sometimes tied to, you know, your specific offense category that you have to do for the sake of parole for sometimes. Sometimes there's just nonprofit programs where you're not going to see this consistently across the different states or the federal system. But at a baseline level, we can expect that all our correctional institutions have a high school or rather a GED program available. And then I think vocational programs as well and technical things. Anything beyond that, anything sort of more sort of post-secondary education, for example, or say like coding, something much more sort of unique and skill-driven or knowledge-based, it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary. It really depends on resources and the institution and just, you know, is that something that's going to be welcomed within the facility? Right. And I imagine non-formal or more informal programming will vary even more between institutions. What are some examples of maybe something that's outside of formal education? Oh, yeah. I'm so glad you asked this question. So I have a couple of women that I keep in touch with who were formerly incarcerated and learned that in the time that they were there, it was, I think, more so attached to, and it's like it's prison industry, but it's part of their job. So let's say that it is, but they learned or became quite skilled in this program called AutoCAD, 
I don't know if you're familiar with that, but my basic understanding of that, it's basically, it's a very specialized program that you use to sort of do sort of designing spaces or like blueprints or architecture. So it's a very, very sort of useful skill, so much so that you can actually leave and actually compete with someone who has many years of, you know, basically designing some of the Zoom backgrounds that we use, right, in terms of how do you actually place that up? Yeah. So that's... It, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And sometimes accounting practices as well, right? Where you're actually processing and handling, you know, serious financials, documents, paperwork. So those are things that are not necessarily formally tied to sort of like educational endeavors, but are types of programs, right? That you wouldn't see or wouldn't expect to see in every facility, just depending on resources that are there, but also just the philosophy of the institution in terms of what individuals are going to be allowed to do and trained to do. It's like, I can't remember what facility it was in, but I remember hearing about like a chef program where you could learn like, you know, more advanced techniques even than just your typical how to cook a normal meal. Exactly. Um, And they actually have like the public come in and do like a restaurant and everything. So those kinds of things are very, very cool. And they help when people are released instead of just, you know, your GED, you walk away Mm -hmm. with a skill too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember speaking with someone and this was a long time ago, I don't think they do it anymore, but the institution he was in gave them auto shop, right? So they got to work on cars and learn how to repair an engine, a transmission, that sort of stuff. But I'm pretty sure they don't do that anymore. Just this was maybe 10 years ago, probably a little bit more than that. And, you know, you go through budget cuts and programming tends to be the first thing that goes with that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. All right. So starting to kind of move into the paper that we'll be talking about then. So in the introduction of this paper, you refer to the 2019 expansion to the Second Chance Pell Grant Experimental Initiative. So can you kind of describe this initiative and how it differentially impacts educational opportunities within correctional institutions? Awesome. Yeah. So that that if you know anything about the Pell Grant now being widely available, it gives you insight to how <laughs> when we started working on this paper. <laughs> but the initiative to to the backtrack the history of where we are right now, the initiative essentially was started in Obama's sort of lame duck years, his last year as the presidency. Then Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan, I believe, and I think Loretta Lynch, then former Attorney General, were involved in this, but it was an effort to sort of pilot a different existing college education programs operating in prison to that managed to stay in, in operation after the 1994 crime bill, largely through private funding and donations, and sometimes through, and also through university support. It was an attempt to basically pilot if we can reinstate Pell funding back, right, sort of an incremental approach to what recently happened with the, I think it was at the end of 2020, just last year, the Congress, uh, reappro- the, the, uh, their spending bill, what was tacked on was removing the ban and reinstating access to Pell Grants for any incarcerated student in this country. And the differential impact associated with that is that we are now expanding access to every state every institution of higher education to get back into the business of extending the opportunity to pursue your college degree. And so in some sense, you are allowing more public schools to get involved, right? Public institutions, right? As opposed to private, small or art schools that probably had the funds and their donor base to actually continue operation. 
the other sort of differential impact, and this is sort of the line of inquiry we take in the paper, is that, okay, we've expanded it, but we haven't necessarily widened the funnel of terms of the path that people take to actually get to a college degree while incarcerated, because what about those individuals that are struggling to get their GED or who don't even, or who are on a waiting list, right, to actually get into a college program or are competing with access because they have to do so many other things for the sake of, you know, whatever they're mandated by their sentence or working towards parole or what's more just intellectually important for them, or that might be more rehabilitative for their purposes. We're making this argument that, yes, we're expanding, the Pell Grant does reinstate greater access, but for whom, right? So there's sort of a dual nature to this differential impact that we that we pick up on. Yeah, that's interesting. And <laughs> and so it's like, how do we actually expand the funnel rather than just the opportunity? So getting yeah. more people into these GED programs, making it more of a priority maybe within correctional institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were a bit subversive, <laughs> admittedly, in, in our approach. We're like, okay, this is good, but wait a minute. And it really came down to just thinking about you know, what's the philosophy of corrections, right? Right now it operates, we'll say, in a sort of very retributive sense. Like, mm-hmm. are we really giving people the opportunities that they need to compete and to, you know, and to not return? And so right. saying that you can tra- literally transform in a very idealistic way yeah. and start this sort of just very basically, what are the activities that people are engaging in that might be able to serve as sort of these self-directed learning opportunities for people? Yeah. All right. So shall we move into your paper then? I think that's a good starting point. Go for it. (laughs) All right. So the paper that we'll be talking about in this episode is authored by our guest, Ajima, as well as two co-authors, Kristen Kramer and Carlton Fong. And the paper is called Learning Opportunities While Incarcerated, Association of Engagement in Literacy and Numeracy Activities with Literacy and Numeracy Skills. So this paper is currently published online and is forthcoming in adult education quarterly. So just to provide kind of a quick intro into the paper that's largely from the abstract in your paper. Awesome, Um, thank you. (laughs) So this paper is examining whether informal engagement in reading, writing, and numeracy activities is related to incarcerated adults' literacy and numeracy skills. So they use data on just over 1,000 respondents from the 2014 Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies, U.S. Prison Study, to examine the association between engagement in these activities and the skills. So hopefully that was a good brief intro. Okay. Yeah. So our first question then is kind of, you know, what is the inspiration or the motivation behind actually writing this paper? Yes, it goes back to, you know, me being sort of my former background and experience in teaching and tutoring in a correctional institution for women for five years, like during graduate school and and staying involved and connected to that community and having this always knowing that our institutions always can be doing better than what they are and that we can completely convert them to something different. And also being aware of just you know, the following the Pell Grant initiative and the idea that, you know, where higher education is right now, that a lot more could be done in terms of a pipeline, a funnel, right? So if you think about the mission of higher education, it's not about, you know, just the students that apply to you, but thinking about beyond them. And so that's sort of where the sort of the very subversive and creative approach came into like, well, wait a minute, let's think about people who are shut out from opportunities. What do they do? What's available for them? How do they, how do they adjust? How do they adapt, essentially? 
And I think our next question, which I think is, is always important to ask is, so why is it important for us to understand this association between educational activities and educational skills? Because we know that like with educational activities and the skills you get from those activities, there's a relationship that the more you engage in something or you engage into activities that are tied to some goal or objective, right, you're more likely in this context to be prepared particularly for adults that we're talking about, right, who've missed a lot of sort of opportunities to, from a very young age, to develop those habits and those skills. And when you're incarcerated, again, this is going to vary, a lot of your time is occupied doing something, right? And that something, you know, is going to tie to some skill, key to, you know, the example I raised earlier about a couple of women that I know that have this great skill with AutoCAD, because a lot of what they were doing was tied to that, so much so that, that was a skill that was developed for them. No different than us, you know, being able to have the skill of doing a study because that is all our training is, right? <laughs> being able to think in a certain way. So it's, right. yeah. All right. Yeah. And I mean, the long-term implications, which you're getting at too, you know, what can they take with them after release? Yeah. All right. So to kind of start to get into the framing of your paper, then you really use this construct of self-directed learning in the context of adult education. And this is something that I'm not familiar with, really, you know, other than just the basic understanding based off of your paper and what the words mean. So can you kind of describe this in more detail and how it's, you know, framing this relationship between activities and skills? Sure, absolutely. And honestly, all props goes to my co-author, Carlton Fong, on this. Like, this is, he's the educational scholar, and he's the one that helped with the frame, and I, and I more so brought the equity lens to it. But from what I understand, it's essentially self-directed learning. So learning that you do without an instructor, without a classroom, without sort of a curriculum, you're responsible for it yourself. And it's really geared towards sort of adult learning, because the idea is that adults, right, when we think in the traditional academic sense, whether, you know, high school or college, right, are not necessarily, don't have life circumstances that are going to be attuned to being in a classroom all day or a certain portion of the day, things like that, or, or attending full time. So the self-directed learning is more so about things that you can do in some sense unsupervised, right? That helps establish or create the necessary learning or knowledge that you need. So think of for us and to sort of translate this into our industry, your dissertation phase that's self-directed learning, right? That is all on you. You check in with your supervisor here and there, what's the progress, but in terms of the methods, the theory, what you're writing, that's all on you. And so we use that same sort of theoretical frame to talk about really engagement in activities where these activities can be seen as self-directed learning opportunities. So if I'm someone who is working in the kitchen, for example, and I'm weighing flour, right? I'm using, I'm adjusting temperature, right? weighing flour, you know, combining things, if we use this self-directed learning frame on that, those become ways in which I'm learning about fractions and measurements, for example. I'm learning about sort of the chemical process of, of, of not to co combine oil and water, for example, or things like that. So it's really just flipping the lens on, we're learning as we do things, but we don't even realize it. And within this, this equity context of, for people who are not engaged in formal educational programs, are they engaging in things that are still learning opportunities for them that can then be translated into, you know, the eligibility tests or the writing tests that they have to do to get access or admittance into these post-secondary education programs? 
So this is kind of maybe a silly question, but I'm just curious because it just came up while you were talking. So there's all of these like self-help books or like things online where you can like watch videos. Would that relate into this idea of self-directed learning or are we talking more like hands-on activities? Given the measure we use in the the data set, it's more so those hands-on activities. But to your point about, you know, these self-help books, that is part of reading right? Mm-hmm. Which is something yeah. that we yeah. measured as part of the literacy to, are you, are you just reading material and how much are you reading that? And what are you reading? Are you reading forms and documents and completing those things like that? So it really, you know, if we were to, you know, replicate the study and, you know, have a better data set, quite honestly, it really begs the question that like, or even actually pilot a study, like if you were to do something long-term along the lines of, using or giving a product people access to academic journal articles and writing versus, you know, completing forms. What are the differences there? But yeah, so not so much. So you can think of, I guess, self-help is appropriate where it's just like, it's on you, but it's also, you know, just the idea that you're working towards some objective. Like I'm working to master, you know, this formula or to understand this thesis. Right. Okay. So you hypothesize in this paper that this construct, this idea of self-directed learning takes on this different form while in prison or in jail. Can you describe why that was kind of the hypothesis and what that form, you know, how it might look different in a correctional environment? Yeah, so I think the main thing that we were thinking about that this is ultimately a system of control, right? And it's punitive control. So it's like, I can't just go to the library and check out a book and, you know, engage in self-directed learning there are programs and things that I have to do, right? And there's politics, there's environmental context that I'm subject to. So there's no total freedom and autonomy there. You're, you're under a system of total control and deprivation, quite honestly. And so what we were trying to get at is the idea that even within the midst of that sort of deprivation, right, there still can be some sort of way to take any engagement and make that into a self-directed opportunity. And it really depends on Again, what engagement activities exist across these facilities, as we'll talk about soon, it's mostly around things that allow people to write, right? Because we notice that the more sort of higher level skills that are needed, particularly around numeracy, and you think about the STEM field or our knowledge economy, it's not necessarily there. And so the way it looks in institutions is that it's, it's, it's going to be different than, you know, for us, those of us who are not within the system or who are not subject to control, it's, it's going to be very creative, I think. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, where you have these programs that are, are engagement level, but they're not necessarily measured in terms of literacy and things like that. But it's within a system that's designed to keep the prison running for whatever mission that is, what it's that keep the peace, keep people quiet, things like that, right? So it's that. And so that's why it's kind of like this sort of this subversive approach to like, all right, if the system's going to use you and warehouse you, right? What can you draw from that, right, in the midst of that? Oh, yeah, that's interesting to think about. Like, okay, so now we have, I think, a pretty good foundation of the framing for, for your paper. So I think now we can start like really getting to the heart of it and sort of, you had two main research questions, right, in, in this paper. And so we want to talk about the first one, which was, what is the relationship between participation in prison education programs and literacy and emergency skills. What were your findings on these relationships between participation in prison educational programs and these literacy and emergency skills? 
Right. So with the education programs, they performed as we expected, right? So you saw a higher sort of score in literacy. And the way we measured, the way literacy was measured in the data that we used was writing and reading. And numeracy was measured as, in some sense, you know, calculations, fractions, just using math and data experience. And so prison education programs performed in a way that we expected, which makes sense because your activities are directly tied to these skills. And the more sort of literacy and numeracy activities engagement in those were less so. Particularly numeracy, I don't think we found any effect, nor did we find any effect with reading. And upon thinking reflection on that, it's probably more so we can speculate and say that's probably because of opportunity to read and what you have access to, right? Because you think about the life and being incarcerated, like the materials you have in your cell, right? And just in terms of are you able to have enough material, like, and do you have a flow of material? And then does you reading time, all those things, and you think about the different levels of security. And so the only place where we did see some sort of improvement in literacy scores was with writing. And if you think about writing on a most basic level, what is that? What does that look like? You're probably writing every day in some way, right? A pass to go here or something, some application you have to fill out. If you're writing a report on someone, a citation, right? If you're constantly preparing materials, if you're, if you're writing someone, right? If you're sending letters home, things like that right? Commissary. You got to fill out your commissary form, right? All right. So just to kind of recap then for this, this first research question on like formal education and skills, we mm-hmm. didn't see this relationship, which was completely expected, right? Um, just based on, you know, what you're doing in these programs and the translation into the skills. For the second research question then, which you were just talking about as well, it's more based in these like creative ways of getting informal education and how that translates And really looking at reading, writing, and numeracy Mm -hmm. activities, really the only important one was really, you know, this writing and how it translated. One thing that, which you just talked about it was writing, but can you kind of elaborate a little bit on some of like the activities that were used for operationalizing, you know, these writing or reading and numeracy activities? Yeah. So this comes directly from the PI I should actually probably figure out how to say this correctly. It is the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies, Mm -hmm. PIAAC, and the Department of Education, I believe, hosts that data set. There's a supplemental data collection for incarcerated individuals. But the writing measures are included writing articles, reports, or completing forms. I think that's it was just limited to that. And then your reading activities, oh, huge one, consisted of reading directions and directions or instructions, letters, memos, newspapers, magazines, journals, books, financial statements, maps. So great diversity there in terms of the different ways in which we can engage. And then the numeracy activities were measured as calculating costs. So commissary, for example, are actually on the job budgets fractions, percentages, using a calculator, preparing charts, graphs, or tables. So the other two were quite diverse, which is interesting that despite the diversity of activities that we were able to measure, didn't have any sort of effect that we'd expect, but reading, which is quite simple, I'm sorry, writing, which is quite simple, did. And I mean, that could just go back to exactly what you were saying is that, you know, writing may be the most common activity and some of these other things may not be used very much. And so I I was kind of curious if you think that's a limitation of the data set where maybe things like 
looking at maps or budgeting, those kinds of things maybe aren't used really at all within these institutions. Yes, I think that that's an excellent follow-up question. I think it's it's more, it could ease, it's definitely a limitation of the data set in addition to the age of it. It's, it's quite old. I know it's expensive to collect these things, but it's always helpful. <laughs> but it's also because it makes you wonder, like, how were these contracts developed? Like, where was this sort of, like, in an evaluator's impression or what? I think it's the, the OECD that also partners on this. Their idea of what it means to have, you know, these competencies, these literacies versus what actually goes on in institutions, you know, consistently. And those should actually be the measures to see to what extent do people actually engage in them and actually be able to see if we can derive an actual, an, a change in literacy. So only engagement in writing activities and not necessarily the reading or numeracy activities mm-hmm. panned out to be a significant predictor of literacy or numeracy skills. Do you have any insight into why the results may have come out the way they did. Yeah, I, it's, I, and this is me sort of speculating. I think it kind of goes back to, at a basic level, when you think about what do we need just to communicate and interact, right? And to have that as a skill, reading and writing. Although we didn't find anything for reading, but going back to Jen's point, it could have been how it was actually measured, right? I think writing in particular is something that we use every day. And if you think in a correctional context, there's something that you're doing where you have to translate thoughts to paper in some way. I think it's probably the most prevalent activity that you can engage in, engage in that doesn't require much, right? In terms of, again, thinking back to self-directed learning, you don't need an instructor to tell you, complete this form. Someone's going to tell you you need to complete a form, you're going to have to write it. And so I think it really becomes, so, and that becomes a, a question about how do you increase or enhance the rigor or the type of writing activities that someone is engaging in, right? To, to boost those scores and to, again, to sort of, that would then actually might even compel someone or incentivize someone to have to engage with more reading because the type of writing that's required has shifted or has changed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know just from interviews with people who are incarcerated in Texas and in Oregon that, I mean, mm-hmm. A lot of them don't really read and most of them are writing, you know, to family, friends, their kids. So yeah, just maybe it's just a function of what's most likely to occur within institutions. That's a great point. You think about the conditions of confinement, like phone calls are expensive, right? They're actually, (laughs) they're criminal in terms of what you're charged, right? And then visitation, if you're even close to family, right? Mm -hmm. That's great. So writing becomes like a predominant medium for a number of, to just communicate for a number of things. Yeah. All right. So to get into these implications again, so could you elaborate on some of the implications from your paper's findings that would be most relevant to first off the academic community, but then also like the general public or policymakers or practitioners within correctional environments? Absolutely. Great question. I think first with for the academic community, replicate. (laughs) We need to do more work like this where it's possible. I know that corrections can be a black box in this country because access is hard to negotiate and just sort of the aversion to research. But I think being more creative in our approach and understanding the conditions of confinement and how that's affecting people and their outcomes while they're incarcerated, but also thinking to the future in terms of reentry. But exploring correctional education more particularly with this, with Pell Grants being restored. And I imagine that there is going to be some attached sort of research component to that, but particularly as we see more legislation 
And I'm thinking the First Step Act, for example, that's going to yield more data and sort of progress about how various legislation is impacting the state of incarceration in, in the United States. I'll start with policymakers last, but so practitioners, I think, you know, what we sort of allude to, which I would say is really exploratory given the limitations of our data set and given that, you know, we couldn't be more robust, although we could have, but we really wanted to start out with just this premise first. It's sort of like taking this premise and sort of like the exploratory nature of what we did and some of the prompts you might read into it and think about how do does your your activities within the facility and whatever programs that exist align with the needs of not only you know incarcerated individuals but the staff who you need to help support what the incarcerated individuals are doing right i can want to read and write all i want but if i don't have that sort of cultural support right it's going to it's going to be interrupted it's it, that might actually hinder self directed learning and what's attractive about that is that it's if you think about it or take it to its logical end, it's not only asking you to divert resources, but reimagine how your resources are being used, right? And, and think about, again, that subversive creative approach I took, how if I'm someone who's doing working in a prison industry or in some sort of job that contributes to the overall functioning maintenance of the facility, how can that become an opportunity in and of itself for someone to engage in self-directed learning? And that sort of leads to policymakers, which is just listen to your practitioners, and you're in your field of scholars who have something to say about this because the work and the activity that's done on the ground is ultimately what needs to inform policy where that can sort of frame the policy goals that we need to see. So in the context of the Department of Education and this Pell Grant initiative, even to higher ed that's taking advantage of it, hey, your, your population of students to serve is broader than those who get admitted, right? That is your future in some sense. So this financial crisis you're experiencing Eh, like think differently about and not even just incarcerated individuals but people in this country who don't have access to higher ed putting aside the cost which is a huge issue but what are some other ways in which higher ed can actually impact people in a way that we have more people that are recognizing the value of pursuing their continuing to pursue their education right and i think it's i mean the findings aren't super strong for these informal aspects of education. But I mean, that could be a whole host of reasons as to why. But thinking about like the implications of that, if we do, if we could shake up the measurements and try and tap more of these things that are actually happening with institutions, it makes me wonder if this is one avenue of getting education that's possibly on the cheaper side versus doing, you know, formal programming that maybe you have to bring in instructors and do, you know, full programs. It's just interesting yeah, to think it, about. And it's it's a great sort of vision that you lay out there. And I think that's what we need to begin to do, to begin to, you know, be, think creatively along those lines and experiment with it. And sort of my sort of vision that sort of parallels what you're saying is that I envision sort of a pipeline, right? Because mm-hmm. the evidence supports us like, yes, posting their educations in correctional institutions is important, is valuable, got it, great. But how do we build up to that, right? And I'm thinking of a book, it's called Reform in the Making by, I have it here, I don't know, you're gonna edit it out, but by Anne Lin, and she's talking about implementation, implement the importance of implementation context. And I brought that up because one of the arguments that she makes is that we often don't think about something, I think, you know, you're already of Genesis, just like the context itself in which this is happening, mm-hmm. right? And that can actually then inform you know, future evaluations of what we need to do differently, as opposed to what I think what we do now is just sort of impose and evaluate as opposed to thinking, wait, how does this fit in? How does this work? 
And again, taking advantage of existing things that are happening and marrying that to some interventions that we actually want to bring in. So if we're going to say higher ed in prison works, everyone needs to do it. Here's the Pell Grants to do it. All right. How do you marry that with what's already going on, including the activities there and particular people who engage in activities that can help, you know, begin to put them on that path? Yeah. There's a lot of good work that should still be done in this area. And I love that you brought up that the correctional staff need to be supportive of it because, I mean, that is a big thing that we're noticing within prisons in Oregon that, you know, there's some of the people that really, you know, push the cultural change and the programming changes and to get them on board and to see that this is going to make an impact, even if it's not quick, it will in the long term. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then just anecdotally, that reminds me, and, and Lynn talks about this in her book that you know, depending on the culture you have there, if it's one of like solidarity versus, you know, dynamic communication with, you know, incarcerated individuals, you could have a situation where, you know, staff feel like, well, wait a minute, you're getting an education, a college education. I don't have that. People I know outside the facility don't have that, right? And you don't want that kind of sort of resentful sort of mentality that could really subvert something good like this. Because at the end of the day, like the mission is, well, the mission is, is debatable, whether it's just a warehouse and, you know, keep people there. But for me, the mission is, is like prisons eventually should become obsolete, not warehouses. And if people are there for long periods of time, like let's make sure they're doing something that's helpful, right, to them and their families. Yeah, I think kind of getting back to what you were saying, that you don't want this sort of us versus them type of mentality kind of really being fostered. It just reminds me of, so I went to, I did my undergrad in like a straight criminal justice department. And so you got a lot of, out in Los Angeles, and so we got a lot of LAPD, LA sheriffs, a lot of correctional officers that that would come in and get their their undergrad. And it wasn't terribly uncommon to hear something like, oh, well, they get better dental care than I do. They get better health care than I do. They get three meals a day. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think, yeah, this culture, so really trying to not have this, like, oppositional culture. God, I, I mean, that's just tough. Like, it is, and which is why I'm grateful for the next generation of scholars and both of you to, like, help figure out our way outside of it. And I think that's why I, you know, I, I reinforce that. And that this is me, you know, barring from the lesson of Lynn's book is that it needs to marry with the institutional values and culture and needs staff and, you know, incarcerated persons and people who facilitate that whole process, because, you know, to Jose, to your point, it could be undone. Right. And what we might see in, in, in some sense is really a measure of just implementation issues, as opposed to philosophically, this effort itself doesn't work. Right. It's just the way in which we actually engage and support programs mm-hmm. or activities in this case. All right. So to kind of bring this implication section into like today's time with COVID and how COVID has you know, changed programming within, within institutions. A lot of places, their formal programming is shut down. They're not bringing in, you know, outside people to facilitate the programs, which is slowly changing right now, but mm-hmm. right, right. a long time, you know, it was shut down. And so given that most of the results as we've been talking about show support for these formal programs, versus informal programming, what kind of implications do these results have for more of these lockdown situations? So this is like really ironic. I'm really glad you asked this question because I immediately went to like technology. I was like, wait, no, that's the obvious answer and that makes sense and that's going to vary widely. But I was just like, wait a minute, 
writing was meaningful. Very, 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 very small impact, but it was meaningful. So really you're thinking about this in terms of COVID, correspondence programs, right? Which is how, which is what we did before the advent of technology, right? And before people were able to go in and out of, of facilities. And so it's like, okay, now you're engaging that sort of that high level writing that I talked about because you have to get your things through the, the mail. Everything's written, right? As opposed to maybe a handout that's given to you that you're reading, right? But now you're writing, you're doing that self-directed learning via correspondence. So, and it's ironic because it's like, I feel like saying that means like, oh, we're going back to the dark ages, but it's like, well, <laughs> not necessarily because like sometimes you can say some facilities are in the dark ages, but it's also, it, it gets back to that, that equity issue and like everyone can do that in, in some sense. And it, it reminds me anecdotally of when I was tutoring teaching, I would hear stories of the women, their roommates who weren't in the college program who were writing alongside with them. Right. Who were incentive, who were inspired by that. I was like, oh, this is what you're doing. I like it. Right. And so I think the implication there is that with COVID-19, you can still maintain obviously your post-secondary programs and you can still foster culture and activities, particularly around writing, given very, very sort of like sort of very, very small sort of weak effect that we saw. But like it'd be interesting to see if like if COVID-19 presents sort of a natural experiment for us to like see what happens in that in that regard. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that could be if, you know, if that has a big impact, that's combining kind of what you were talking about, where you're combining these informal mechanisms with these formal mechanisms. And who knows, maybe another lockdown will occur or, you know, lessons learned to take forward into the future. It'd be Absolutely. interesting to look at. Yeah. 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 So now we're going to move into a little more of a project that you're working on now. And it's this legitimacy in corrections that we had talked about between the three of us. Yeah. And so you're working on this project and we've talked about legitimacy on the podcast before. I believe it's episode three with Lee Slocum and Andres Nankifo, but they talked about it in a police and communities context. Mm -hmm. And so just quickly for our listeners, legitimacy probably is this measure of a person's obligation to obey, confidence in the police, and positive effect towards the police. But can you tell us a little bit more about your project with legitimacy and corrections? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned, you spoke about legitimacy before, but in the context of policing, because that's one of the arguments that, shout out to my colleagues, Dr. Relly Bilchika and Dr. Jeffrey Ward at Temple, who help conceive this project. And actually the data comes from Dr. Vilchika's prior project from over a decade ago. We said like, we can draw, everyone talks so much about policing and legitimacy. Like there's other parts of the system where police legitimacy is, is a factor. And in this case, particularly in corrections, given all sorts of decisions that are made that impacts people's lives while they're incarcerated. And so this project is an outgrowth of a different project that sought to assess the impact of a moratorium on parole that was imposed in Pennsylvania, I think over like 12 years ago now, by former Governor Ed Rendell. And he opposed the moratorium out of political expediency because someone who was paroled from the state of Pennsylvania, from a prison in Pennsylvania, I think was then involved in a murder. And so it became, oh, everyone who is incarcerated is subject and is ready for parole. And I think was incarcerated for a violent offense, no parole for you. So it's like, wait a minute, the due process, the parole process, that sort of was just arbitrary and taken out. So thus it sort of birthed this. And so what happened is that they received 
we have like over 134 letters. So it's an archival research project where we had to scan and digitize and transcribe both typed and handwritten, oh, writing, handwritten letters <laughs> and created a sort of electronic database. And what essentially we're trying to capture is to what extent can we assess or really not assess, but observe or identify the psychological impacts, but also the legal impacts that letter writers tell us about with respect to this arbitrary sort of decision-making that was made for political expediency. And it's getting at the heart of just the legitimacy of not even really the parole process, but yes, yeah, something that affected the parole process. And it's, I had a, I had a team meeting with a couple of students that are helping me go through each letter because we're right now we're, we're going to do two cycles of encoding and we're in the first round and we're, we're doing double coding as we go. And one of the letters that a student brought up mentioned that there's this issue of advice or bound up in the idea that what happened to them wasn't fair, right? There was no sort of say or do process. This is something I've been working towards. Like I, this is everything I've done. And all of a sudden, because of something else that had nothing to do with me, this has happened. I've been discriminated against. And so it so sort of just really unpacks this rich narrative of decision-making and within, within correctional institutions, right? It's, there, there's some very sort of similar impacts related to policing and legitimacy that happens when, as people are still in the system. Ooh, how many of these letters are you guys going through? We have 134. And these letters are both from people, from different letter writers from across Pennsylvania, but also could be from family members, we noticed. And some letter writers write more than once. And sometimes the letters will be seen so far yeah, I think they're all related so far to the issue of the decision that was made. And so basically, once all is said and done, we're probably going to read 134 letters in the aggregate as a group four times because we're doing double coding and two cycles of coding. Yeah. <laughs> wow. oh, it's yeah, hard work. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. But I bet some of the letters are incredibly interesting to read and just understanding, you know, what they're going through, whether as a family member or from someone who's, you know, personally, directly being impacted or was impacted. Is this, is the moratorium still? Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. The moratorium, I think it was only like a couple months and yeah, and was removed. But I think that in itself, particularly if you think about how information flows in prisons, yeah. there's asymmetrical information. You don't know something's happening to you. It's going to be until it's about to happen. You can imagine like, what's going to happen. And someone actually talked about that. I have a family member I need to care for. I have a job lined up. This directly takes that away from me. Wow. So yeah, it's very rich and detailed. And, and it's not like what we've seen so far. It's not like pages and pages of letters. Like these individuals are, they're very succinct and detailed in what they're talking about. And that might've been a function of the data collection when they first solicited the letters. Well, so you're currently working on the coding up process and then yeah qualitative and so I'm not qualitative really at all Jose is more in that so then what have to go through all of the coding to draw out different themes is that kind of where you're headed yeah. with this so I, I tend to work I tend to start qualitative but I always end up quantitative it's just, it's just <laughs> I just default to mixed methods which I always account for now in my in my my research approach but yeah so we're doing our first cycle is deductive coding so we came to the project with some ideas of what we expected to observe around legitimacy, so like decision-making, we have constitutionality, like looking about sort of just if there's anything related to that, the conditions of prisons so or the climate, the culture, we're looking at psychological effects, so the strain, the stress, and we're actually capturing negative cases along the way. 
I wish I could, you know, you could display for your listeners my database so I can walk you through this. And so, and then as we're doing that, we're keeping track of essentially inductive code. So things that were like, oh, someone is talking about racial discrimination. We should capture that. That's meaningful in this context of decision-making. Also, other things that we've captured, there's this advice that we see that's a pattern. I think, again, the result of the original data collection where the authors were trying to understand the overall impact from a quantitative standpoint. And that second part, the inductive coding, that's going to happen after we go through the deductive. So we're doing this in sort of like strict phases so that we can impose some sort of organization to everything we're collecting. So you're like right in the middle of your coding, but when can we sort of start expecting to see the fruits of your labor? Okay, so yes, I appreciate that question. I'm hoping by this summer or, yeah, I want to say by this summer, we should be analysis mode. And then I'm hoping that we can get a manuscript out by the end of this calendar year. Cool. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pushing the pedal on this one because... I wanted to get out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll have to let us know if we don't spot it, you know, when oh, yeah. things start to come out and then we can add it to our website so people oh, can find it. So. I, I would be honored to let you know for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds very interesting. I'm excited to read that. Legitimacy. I'm kind of I'm working on something right now with procedural justice and legitimacy mm. and, and corrections. Hopefully it'll be done soon. I've been working on it for way too long. <laughs> so yeah. I'm very interested to see what you come up with. Absolutely. Be sure to share. Yeah, we're doing some pretty creative stuff because we had to transcribe all the letters in order to de-identify them. And Dr. Vilchika came up with this very creative idea. She's like, oh, we should do intertranscriber reliability. I was just like, what? And I was like, how? Like, wait a minute. But I found a very sort of creative way to think about that in R. So in an attempt to sort of document our process and talk about how among a sort of multi-person research team, how we were able sort of to make sure we had did things consistently because, and staying true to the nature of the letters, because if they were sort of the way things were spelled or worded, we want to like keep it in its original form and then also have to account for, was this not transcribed correctly, which affects interpretation or is this how it truly was a letter? So yeah, it's been really interesting to do an archival project as a criminologist and then to, to yeah, think yeah. about things like how do you report to the field that cares very much about methods, what you did and how, and how you did that. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're documenting it all. So that <laughs> is the first step, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, do you have any last comments or things that you'd like to share? I'd like to give a shout out to two amazing young scholars that I think people should look out for. Their names are Jose Sanchez and Jen <laughs> Toastly. Did I tell your last name right? You did. Awesome. Crushed it. Yes. So shout out to both of you and thank you for this wonderful opportunity. It's amazing and I feel so encouraged and can't wait to graduate. And um, well, Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We find your work really interesting and we can't wait to see what you put out into the world in the future and Thank we'll be so sure much. to make people aware of, of your work. Thank you. And so we kind of already talked about this a little bit with, with your mm-hmm. current project, but is there anything else you'd like to plug? Anything else we should be on the lookout for? I'm terrible at self-promotion. I really am. That's the part of the job I hate. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 
find me on Twitter, I barely post. <laughs> and I would use it as sort of like photo album or like a word album like oh I want to hold on to this yes. <laughs> and so I'll put in your chat or I guess for your listeners forgive me it's just my first name my first name my last name and my first name is spelled A-J-I-M as in Maria A last name is O-L-A-G-H-E-R-E and that's my Twitter handle and Instagram handle great thank you well, perfect yeah thank you again I think that's all the questions we have for you Okay, excellent. This was fun. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, it was fun for us too. Yep. Looking forward to it all for the whole day. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we love doing these episodes and talking to, to people about the work they're doing. It is so fantastic. I seriously, I commend y'all. Like when I was in your position, oh my gosh, I just had my head in the books. I was just trying to survive and this is amazing. So I'm definitely go back and gonna listen to your other episodes too. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, goodness knows, being in quarantine, I need something <laughs> to right. keep me keep my mind, you know, engaged, but like not watching something that's not useful. <laughs> Netflix all day. No. <laughs> Love Netflix. Was like, I got a problem now. I need to stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I had some free time yesterday, and so I started watching like this YouTube video on zero inflation and negative binomial. <laughs> And I was like, this is pretty, like, this is a productive use of my time. But I, but I did that for like 20 minutes. And then I was like, you know what? I, and I just would like left and I like, started watching a movie. instead. <laughs> hey, self-directed learning. You know what? It's just, you're taking that break. Your brain is a brain. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Especially because I'm pretty sure at some point I like completely got confused at what, what was happening. <laughs> so I was like, I think this is a good time to, to stop get a snack and maybe watch a movie or something yeah yeah <laughs> anyways thank you again we really thank do you. appreciate it absolutely I can only imagine how busy your schedule must be yeah so. <laughs> time is what we make of it the criminology academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts make sure to follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at the crim academy if you're on apple Podcasts, please rate review and subscribe Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.